You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For the Now media production. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Null and Void Sports Podcast. All our lives have changed to a lesser or greater degree after Queen Elizabeth died on Thursday. We recognise that this country is in a period of national mourning. Nevertheless, we intend to bring you your normal podcast, but clearly some of our regular key sporting events were postponed over the weekend. We have, though, still got some great sports stories and a highly talented guest to bring you knowledge of psychotherapy and hypnotherapy in both sports and business. My name is Tony Grundy. And mine's Andy Callahan. I guess the big question has to be for you, Andy, did you complete your 100k uh, Thames Path walk over the weekend? I did indeed, Tony, yeah. Um, well done, well done. Thank you. Finished it in just over 25 hours. Um, set off from Putney Bridge on Saturday morning, 7.20, and finished uh, yesterday morning uh, just round about 8.30, so just over 25 hours. Um, yeah, it was tough. Uh, an amazing event. First of all, hats off to the organisers, you know, really well organised. They'd managed to obviously keep things in a way that was still respectful with everything that was happening in London uh, over the last few days. So they'd managed to balance that with then keeping the event going. I mean, there were over 3,000 people taking part in the different events they ran this weekend, as well as the 100k one. They do 50k day one 50k day two people can do half of it um they also do a thames bridges trek which goes the other way back into the city at 25k over the bridges i mean overall there was over over one million pounds raised for charity by this event this weekend for over 400 charities so a fantastically well-run event you know the food the rest stops and everything that were well stocked with all the food that you could want and a lot that you couldn't want, at, you know, in the morning when you've been walking for goodness knows how many hours and someone's trying to put a bacon butty in your hand. Now, you know me normally, I mean, look at the shape of me. Normally, I'm not one to turn down bacon. I love bacon um, and I couldn't face it. I knew at that point there was something wrong when I couldn't <laughs> eat bacon butty. But uh, yeah. you know, an amazingly well-run event. Uh, got to meet some people with some fantastic stories. I was chatting to a lady called Nikki. Didn't get her second name. She was... In her late 50s, um, she had a stroke at the start of the year and lost a lot of mobility on one side as a result of it. All through rehab, her goal, she had booked on to do an earlier ultra um, 100K event, the Action Challenge run in the year she postponed, moved it to this one, which is the last one they do of the year. And her focus through rehab was to be able to do the 100K over two days. And I've looked on the results. She's managed it. And I just, you know, when, you, when you're chatting to someone like that, it's a humbling story, you know. Yeah, that, yeah. And just amazing that that was her goal to get help her get through rehab and get the real use of her, full use of her left-hand side of her body back. So, you know, talking to people like that, amazing. There were some tough bits, you know, walking through the thick fog and mist um, through the night. You know, I went about three hours without seeing anyone. Um, and obviously what I hadn't told anyone last week was how unwell I'd been with like symptoms. Um, I've had an absolute rocket of Mrs. Callahan, my mum, uh, who's a regular listener for um, not obeying the words of our guest last week, Peter, the cardiologist who said, don't train, don't exercise <laughs> if you've been unwell. Well, on Thursday I was double dosing on LEMSIP just to be able to sit at the computer and work from home. So I really wasn't in a great place starting on Saturday morning. Um, but yeah, you know, going through the night, misty, cold, some amazing views as we got to Bourne End and the sailing club. <clears throat> the mist was hanging above the river, clear full moon and stars, the river mill pond still, just an amazing view. I tried to capture it on my iPhone and Obviously, with an older iPhone, the camera isn't as good. It didn't come out well. But yeah, you know, that point was uh, after that high of the view, quite a low walking through that thick fog where you're really having to struggle to follow the path. And on some walks, you think, well, following the path isn't too essential. 
But when you've got the River Thames five feet to your left, <laughs> kind of want to stick to the path. So, but no, got into Henley yesterday morning. Really, as I said in my social media posts, that's probably one of the medals I'm proudest of because it was so tough one with what had gone on the week before. And, uh, you know, to get in, they put the medal around your neck, give you a glass of fizz, which is just what you want after walking 100 kilometres, being dehydrated and tired you know, <laughs> of warm Prosecco. Really hits the spot. <laughs> but no, I mean, congrats. Amazing congrats. event. And the, the support yeah. people have given over the weekend on social media, just a huge thank you to everyone on that. No, you've done, you've done brilliantly, mate. And, <clears throat> and uh, I also, just going back to you, what you said about the organisers, given everything that was going on and the focus on London and so on, they've done exceptionally well to make that happen so congratulations all around and so you're now resting up are you gonna keep off big events or are you hiding some away i'll bet you are um given the people that listen to this no comment i'm pleading the- <laughs> <laughs> you're a real media a real media person now aren't you? No, comment. no comment well we, we'll see i mean for me the weekend was strange because there was no football on tv and it meant more time to do my other list of jobs around the garden. And actually, it made me realise just how many weekends do we revolve around live football. The question, was it right for football not to play when other sports paid their respects to the Queen? Well, more on that later. I think Andy's got something to say on that matter. Mm-hmm. Cricket. Cricket, that's next on my list. Unbelievable, this team. I mean... Taking the day out in respect uh, of the Queen's death uh, made absolutely no difference to Ben Stokes and the boys. It just doesn't matter, does it? Well, when you think they'd lost the first day of play to rain as well, so there was no play on day one because yeah. of rain, no play on day two because they'd um, postponed things for the uh, in respect of the Queen. So you basically got then two and a half. Well, it was over by what, 30 minutes this morning? So two days and 30 minutes of play. And you've got a result out of a game that looked, for all intents and purposes, on on Friday night, as though a draw was the most likely outcome. But I think uh, Billy Carr, who's a regular regular listeners, will recognise the name. He's normally our football correspondent, but a fan of all sports. I think he said, it's like cricket on fast forward. Um, I mean, the England innings, first innings and South Africa first innings, both lasted 36 overs. So if that had been on day one, in essence, South Africa's second innings would have been starting just after tea on the first day. I mean, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy the way that this thing and brilliant. You know, we've we've been quite critical of Zach Crawley on this show and, you know, not not getting the runs with the bat. He put in a, a stellar performance um, in this innings, you know, 61 not out, but really looked to the part. I think, you know, hopefully, you know, he can really now start to repay the faith that Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum have uh, put in him. Yeah. Now, American Open Tennis, that finished with a, a flourish and we've got a, a new number one in ranking terms. Uh He's 19-year-old, isn't he, uh, Carlos Alcaraz? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he, he beat Rudd, the Dutch... Uh, and Norwegian. Beat, Norwegian oh, player. OK. All right. Well, thank you for that. I wasn't sure. <laughs> I'd seen I'd seen French and uh, Dutch, but anyway. Norwegian. Yeah. But um, so he becomes the world's number one at 19, and I think that's some sort of record in itself. He's the youngest Grand Slam winner since Rafa Nadal won in 2005. So, you know, certainly... One one to watch. He'd done well at Wimbledon. Yeah. Yeah, last year's women's um, final in the Open being between two young players and Raducanu winning. I think the men have taken suit this year and said, right, we need a younger winner. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it's good to see. Uh, On the ladies' side, did, did you see any of that? I didn't. Again, I was I was busy busy walking. I I, I was uh, somewhat otherwise occupied. I, funnily enough, I couldn't couldn't get reception uh, of the tennis at that point. But uh, Iga Swiatek won it. Swiatek, yeah, yeah, impressive. Not everybody's favourite. I mean, that happens with champions. Uh, I think her opponent in the final said, "I really don't like her very much." 
<laughs> so I don't suppose you do like people that beat you in the final. But yeah, yeah, those, those grapes were a bit sour. <laughs> they were a bit. Rugby Union, Andy, what have you got there? Yeah, season started this weekend, so um, some uh, great games. Uh, my team, Harlequins, doing what Harlequins do. Um, were losing at Kingston Park against Newcastle away and then came back with a couple of late tries and uh, one was, you know, length of the field type stuff, uh, champagne rugby, uh, to win it in the end. Um, great start to the season, so bonus point start. In some of the other big games, um, Exeter beat the reigning champions, Leicester, so in a very close game. Bristol won the West Country Derby by two points against Bath. Um and then uh, an upset for the books, but a team that I think could really do something this season with the signings they've made. Um, Sale beat Northampton Saints. So, uh, yeah, you know, that's a team that I would say this is probably, as we all know, my predictions then become the kiss of death for any team <laughs> or any horse or anything like that. But I really think Sale could do something this season. So uh, that's probably a good hint for null and void listeners not to put any money on them. All right, and, and rugby league. Who are you going to put the kiss of death on for the playoff final there? Um, well, I'm I'm a Rhinos fan. Uh, used to be a season ticket holder there. They won away at Catalans in the playoff eliminator, which was an unexpected result. And then Salford also won away at Huddersfield. So mm. the semi-finals now are going to be Wigan against Rhinos and St Helens against Salford. So. Uh, I think, again, you've got to fancy Wigan and Saints for those. They were the two best teams in the league by yeah. the way this season. But come playoff time, it's a one-off game. And to use the old cliche, in a one-off game, anything can happen. Exactly that. Uh, I got a note on the Great North Run. Had an interest in that. Obviously, half marathon course, 60,000 runners. Men's winner was Ugandan for the first time ever, a Ugandan, Jacob uh, Kip Klimo, Kip Limo, Kip Limo. Yeah, I've got it right now. Um, <laughs> he's, uh, he won in 59.33, which is, you know, sickeningly fast as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I think my best half marathon time was 127, which I thought was respectable. But, you know, he'd be half an hour ahead of me. Sickening. I mean- in fairness, Tony, for for you know an amateur runner as you were, um, you know, not an elite athlete, one twenty nine is a great time. One twenty seven. Sorry, one twenty seven. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Those two minutes matter. But one twenty seven is a great time. But yeah, you know, when you look at it and think he's going to be back and changed, showered, and halfway to his hotel by then, and, uh, yeah, so yeah. it really does put it into context. Yeah, and 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 also, uh, and the women's was won by. Helen uh, O'Beary, uh, and that was one hour and seven. Uh, again, she's 20 minutes ahead of me, uh, half an hour ahead of me, uh, rather, maybe more. So, yeah, it, it's fascinating to look at that, but that's a well-supported event. And, I'm, uh, yeah, again, in view of everything that was happening, good on them that they managed to get that done because there's so much money raised for charity. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky enough to do the Great North Run 10 times, and, uh, you know, the support is amazing you know the northeast they come out and you're running through some of the areas where people have really gotten out you know not not even two pennies to run rub together and they're coming out with cut up oranges and jelly babies and things like that um someone handed me a, a glass of beer on one of the events which again probably wasn't the best thing to have at about mile 10 of the course and then you have a big climb up and then a steep drop down onto the the seafront and you turn left and yeah. then you can see the finish in South Shield. It just never, because of the way the road comes inland, it just never seems to get closer till you're into about five, six hundred meters. You you can see it for about a mile and a half, and it just you sat there looking at it, going, "It's not getting any blooming closer." But yeah, yeah. No, it's a really well supported event. And I haven't, I've never done that one, but uh, the equivalent for me was the uh, Southampton. Uh, uh, at Portsmouth, rather, 10 mile. And, and there, again, you, learn, you turn and you run right along the front to the finish, but the finish seems to go further away, particularly if the <laughs> wind's against you at that point. And that, yeah. was, that would be my equivalent of that. But um, cycling, uh, La Vuelta, 
Yeah, La Vuelta a España um, was uh, eventually won by uh, Evena Paul, who um, had been leading really through the last week. So he held on to secure the win and become the first Belgian to win a Grand Tour since 1978. So I'd only just been born when the last Belgian to win a Grand Tour uh, winning. <laughs> so he he's won that. And then Enric Maas came second. So you know, a, a well a well-deserved win by Evenepoel, um, definitely. Good good stuff. Uh, Britain, of course, was unfortunately cancelled. Uh, we talked about it last week where you could have thrown a blanket over the first 10, 15 riders. But, yeah, with everything that had happened in the UK, I think the decision was taken on Thursday evening after the, the sad passing of the Queen to, uh, to yeah. cut event off and cancel the last three stages. Yeah, it, it was unfortunate, that. Um, Grand Prix in uh, Italy, Verstappen, fifth consecutive win again. And the weird thing is, one with a safety car win. In other words, the safety car bringing him over the finishing line. Really weird. How does that happen? How does it keep <laughs> happening? Well, you know, a, a conspiracy theorist might uh, put some ideas forward, but uh, I don't have the finances to fight a legal case with F1. <laughs> So I'm not going to make any comment on that, but and, and, you know, and, and Verstappen well. does seem to seem seem to thrive when the safety car is out, and seems to get the his team seem to get the tactics right. And uh, yeah, been in Abu Dhabi last year, last weekend, and now here, Mercedes maybe don't get their tactics quite right with the safety car out. And and if Verstappen wins next week in Singapore. He will win the championship miles before the end of it. So that's how far ahead he is. Yeah, there's uh, what five or four or five races left. So it would be yeah, yeah. It, they everyone would be fighting for second place in the constructors' championship. Indeed. Um, you want to say something about the PGA Golf versus the Rebels, as it were? Yeah, it got, inter- got interesting this weekend. I haven't haven't caught up with the final results yet. To see who won and. Uh, who didn't? But yes, yeah, certainly there was uh, a war of words being fought because the uh, LIV Saudi-backed tour rebels were back in for this event. So Ian Poulter and Co. I think Ian Poulter had had a couple of run-ins with different people, and they'd been asked not to wear LIV branded and sponsored kit for the event. And he turned up. I will say, not in LIV kit, but in the kit of the team that he's involved in in the LIV tour and also that he is a part owner of so uh yeah you know there were some arguments there about what should he or shouldn't he have been wearing it I think uh you know Rory McIlroy was saying uh you know should they be here or not other players saying by turning up this week they're taking money out of lads pockets so yeah uh, yeah, it all got a bit acrimonious there were um videos that have come out of what looked like heated discussions between Rebels and non-rebels on the uh, putting uh, greens, you know the war. Yeah. Well, I, I I think to be honest, Andy, it's only the start. <laughs> I can see Fisikov definitely because there's so much at stake, uh, and and people are less than happy. Put it that way, less mm. than happy. Um, NFL started, didn't it? You 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 follow that? Yeah, yeah. So again, like the rugby, the first weekend of the NFL this weekend. So. Um, some great games. Uh, Brady's back. I think he lasted 11 days at home with the kids before deciding he was coming out of retirement last season. So, uh, yeah. you know, I think he got a flavour of what everyone had gone through during lockdown over the last two years and decided that all that time with the kids wasn't necessarily the, uh, the right way to go. So he came back out of retirement and his team um, uh, won. Um, so the Buccaneers won in a tight game. And then the reigning Super Bowl champions, the LA Rams, lost to a team that I've liked the look of in preseason, and I think could do something this year after a number of years of not doing anything, which was the Buffalo Bills. So um, I haven't yet caught, I'm a Titans fan, haven't yet caught their game. I want to sit and watch that as live. So I haven't even looked at the scores yet. I've been really careful to avoid those. Avoid them, so, yeah. Focus. I'll catch Sense. that at some point, probably on the train into London tomorrow. Okay. Uh, next up, I've got contacts. I've got one. I guess other people have been uh, otherwise involved this weekend in many different ways. 
that Mike Butterworth has been in contact about last week's podcast. He says, brilliant. Thanks, Mike. Well, well done. Another great interview, guys. Well, thank you, Mike, in every sense, because you introduced us to Peter. But congratulations are due to you, Mike, after a terrific recovery from your injuries sustained with your bike crash. Amazingly, you have just got back to a GB team qualification time again. We at Null and Void, Andy and I, absolutely applaud what you've done. Many congratulations. Terrific. Yeah, fa- fantastic achievement. And, you know, to, to come back after what was a really serious collarbone injury, mm. to make the GB duathlon team, I think it's fantastic and real testament to uh, to Mike's uh, resilience and grit that I know he talked about when, when he was on the pod with us and you know sort of, but yeah just really great to see him back and doing that and uh yeah thanks for putting us in touch with another great guest mike yeah um right now get a grip and uh, you've got something for us related to last weekend <clears throat> yeah about. and uh I, i've i've been warned by people i've run this past i could be batting on a sticky wicket but here goes so um my get a grip this week is uh, to a number of celebrity pundits, but mainly Piers Morgan, Gary Neville and Peter Crouch, who've all come out moaning about the fact that football was cancelled at the weekend due to the um, the death of the Queen. And, uh, you know, they've all argued that actually it's going to create a backlog of fixtures by postponing games, which I can't disagree with. But then again, that's what comes when you allow... Uh, FIFA or FIFA allow, however it was acquired, the World Cup to be held in the middle of a season rather than at the end of a season. So it's going to create its problems. I think Peter Crouch's comment was, he put on Twitter, I know it's only a game and some things are much bigger, but imagine if all our games went ahead this weekend. Black armbands, silence is observed, national anthem and royal band playing uh, to millions around the world. And he talked about this being a way to pay respect. Well, my argument to Peter Crouch would be that the fact that silence is observed, he thinks that that and football fans would pay respect. I think that's where he would have gone wrong. You know, we can't trust a lot of football fans to get it right and get the tone right. You know, sort of, you've seen Liverpool fans booing the national anthem. You've seen Celtic fans last season making a right raucous through what was meant to be a minute's silence um, to mark the passing of someone. So I think football fans can't be trusted. We don't know what moronic things those fans would have done. I've had arguments with people, including my mum, who said, well, you know, if if football was cancelled, so should rugby and cricket have been. Well, I think we all know that rugby fans and cricket fans know a little bit more about what the word respect means than some of the fans at football clubs. Not tiring them all with the same brush, Tony. I'm not, not tiring you all there with the same brush. But I would say that for, for the weekend and with it where it could have just ended up putting a very, painting a very poor picture of football, I think it was the right decision to make sure that they weren't put in that position. I know other people will disagree and agree that either everything should have been cancelled or everything should have gone ahead. And, you know, I, I just think that with the track record of some fans in some football clubs not being able to show respect, you know, you have all the different disrespectful chants about tragedies that have happened in football. Certainly, you've said, you know, when United and Liverpool play, both sides are as bad as one another about disasters that have happened there. I just think that it was the right decision to make sure that football wasn't put in that position because I don't think the fans could have been interested <laughs> with that. If you want the shiny baubles and the big toys, then you've got to show that you're able to... Uh, to play with them. So I think on this occasion, I would say to Messrs Crouch, Neville, and it gives me great glee to say to Piers Morgan, get a grip. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it doesn't stop there, does it? I mean, Arsenal's game is off in the Europa League, home game in Europa League this Thursday because of policing issues. And so much, so many of the police are now needed in central London. <clears throat> and I think Liverpool, Chelsea, Perhaps for the reasons you're saying, United Leeds is also off a weekend. But the, you know, the 
aggregation of all of that in terms of fixture congestion, well, yeah, it's going to cause problems, but it is a very special time. And I, I go with you in terms of can you trust those people to behave properly? And the answer is probably not. So, as you say, get a grip, peers and others. All right. Um, yeah, let's move on to a higher grade, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. Last week. Bring the tone up. Yeah, bring the tone up. Why not? <laughs> uh, last week, I said at this point in the podcast we were doing then, tonight's guest was introduced to us by our good friend, Mike Butterworth. Well, one week on, and I'm saying exactly the same thing. <laughs> Yet again, Mike has also rec recommended our next guest. This time, he's an elite mindset coach, a clinical uh, psychologist, a psychotherapist, an award-winning inspirational speaker, and a multi-marathon runner just thrown into the mix for good measure. Allow me to introduce you to our guest, Andy McManamy. Andy, welcome to Null and Void. How are you doing? Mike is a great guy, so all, all credit to him, and, uh, and I'm delighted that he's put us together. Excellent. Well, well, welcome aboard. Now, that's quite a list to start off with in terms of what I was saying there, lead mindset <laughs> coaching and so on. What percentage of your work time is spent with, with each of those disciplines, roughly speaking, just as a guide for our, our dear listener? Well, it's quite interesting. I, I spent 22 years actually in the corporate world. And when I left the industry in the banking crisis at 2008, um, I set up as, um, I guess, a leadership mind coach. So I was working primarily with helping leaders in business, people that ran their own businesses to have a strategic mindset on how they went about their business. And it was a number of years later, around about 2015, um, I was invited by a client to uh, go for a walk in the hills rather than sit in a hotel and give him some coaching. And he declared during that walk in the hills that where we were out for, for about four or five hours, that he was actually um, contemplating ending his life. And as a business coach, that threw me completely because my strategy was once I'd earned respect was to share some tough love in the areas where they needed to learn the lessons and grow. And I was petrified. I'd say the wrong thing. So to cut a long story short, I decided I'd never find myself in that situation again. And I wanted to learn how to be able to decondition emotional trauma and stress. So I, I went through a two year training program to become a clinical hypnotherapist, um, which allowed me to be able to interrupt the emotional magic genie that we all have in our heads. And, um, and the training just progressed and developed from there beyond. So I spend, um, a good amount of time in the elite mindset coaching with businesses, um, managing directors that want their their teams to have a, a clarity of focus that can take them into new areas of success, if you like. And in my private practice, I see clients um, through all ranges of life uh, to help them with emotional well-being. Uh, we we label it mental health, but there's a massive umbrella phrase that means something different to everyone you talk to. So I talk specifically about emotional well-being and taking control of our emotions um, as opposed to allowing ourselves to be overwhelmed by life. So it's very difficult to quantify the split, Tony. I prefer to spend more time with the elite mindset coaching, um, and that's what I'm doing currently. Of a, I mean, a big step, Andy, and a brave move, you know, in the in the midst of that financial crisis back in 08, 09, to then go out on your own and, uh, you know, certainly setting up for yourself. What was it prompted that decision to say, right, you know, now's, now the time's right, when a lot of people were, if you like, batting down the hatches and just worrying about the future? Yeah, I, I'd been headhunted head into a very senior role within a, a £500 million organisation, and I was running a £17 million division inside of that organisation. And it just seemed to me that I was spending more and more time driving spreadsheets and less and less time interacting with my team, which is what I enjoyed doing the most. I'm a people person, and I like to get down there in the trenches with them and help them to close you know, deals and transactions they're working on rather than just... What I felt what I was doing more and more of was just driving a spreadsheet to justify my existence. So I think at the age of 45, I was getting to that stage where I thought, you know, enough's enough. I need to find something now that is really going to inspire me for the next stage of my, my career and my life. Mm -hmm. um, so that, to answer your question, that's what brought me to that, that juxtaposition, if you like. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was a lovely 
springboard when the banking crisis hit i knew it was going to impact our business model significantly there was probably going to be a good 18 months before we could turn it around and it was just a nice cost saving exercise for the business to release them from my my salary and my and their, and their obligations and for me to go out and find pastures new mm. did i mean did talk about your mindset in that situation do, were you fearful i think of some of the changes i've made in business and you know when you look back on anything god i don't believe i did that at that time but were you fearful at that time i was tony absolutely um I, i'm very much a risk averse person uh so it was a big big sort of gulp and a step forward into uncertainty but um i knew that other people had done it and i just had to find a way that would work for me hmm. and, and is that your general attitude aptitude i mean you, you know you as you say you're risk averse so you're quite careful about those things but when you look at some of the things you're doing the the public speaking at top level i mean that's not everybody's cup of tea how did you get yourself in into all of that um it came on the back of actually completing the marathon de sar back in 2007 um, I know Andy's a, a veteran of that race. So uh, I was invited to speak for the charity that I supported. And that led to um, some of the patrons that supported the charity inviting me to speak for their organizations. Uh, a number of years later, I, I found myself um, working with a speaking agent based in, um, funny enough, Henley on Thames, where Andy was at the weekend. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, um, this year I've been very fortunate with... Um, some connections that were made for me and I was engaged by Amazon to speak to their leadership teams across the globe um, on an event in January, primarily focused on, they have an affiliation inside of Amazon for military veterans where they recruit quite heavily from. And there's an organization called the Amazon Warriors. So I was delivering some keynote presentations around the areas of post-traumatic stress, uh, how later in life, just normal everyday stressors can be triggers um, and how to deal with those. And um, their global vice president of staff well-being and events um, picked up on that podcast and uh, asked me if I would deliver their mental health month, which was in May. So an absolute privilege to be recognized and uh, trusted by them. Mm. Do, do you enjoy that area most? I, uh, you know, the, the speaking, because I, I know the challenges of that, and Andy's done an awful lot of this as well. You know, that in itself is a skill set that you can teach people. How on earth, how on earth you have the, the wherewithal and the courage to stand up in 250 people and think, this is going to be great. It's not everybody's cup of tea, is it? It's not. And psychologists will tell you that if you go back into our evolutionary past, we are social animals and we're tribe oriented. And anytime we find ourselves exposed out in front of 300 pairs of eyes in our evolutionary past, we were just about to be lunch. <laughs> so, so it is a primal instinct to uh, to feel very uncomfortable as the center of attention. I mean, I know I know personally, I absolutely love doing it. And, you know, sort of platform speaking, keynotes, we love doing it. But there is that bit 10 minutes beforehand of what I would call abject terror. And I think if someone opened a fire door at that point and went, if you run through here, Andy, you don't have to do it. I'd be <laughs> off. But then actually when I'm up there, I love doing it. So it's a real weird dichotomy there of sort of, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I love doing this. Yeah, I agree, Andy. Um, every, you know, elite speaker or high level speaker I've, I've shared the stage with and spoken with we all have pre-stage nerves and we all have our particular rituals that help us to get through them and for me one that um i kind of reflect back on the very early days of my self-development sort of uh, process and going to conferences and i always sat right at the very back i was uh, i'm an introvert by nature so i sat at the very back um not wanting to be under the spotlights at the front and very quickly realized i was missing out on an awful lot of the atmosphere by not being at the front so whenever i speak at, uh, in an auditorium or on a large stage i always take a couple of moments in my pre-stage ritual to go to the back of the room and i look at that seat at the very back of the room and i look at the stage and i think how can i touch the person that's going to be sat in this seat 
Mm. You know, from this distance, what can I say, you know, that will impact them? How can I recognize them in a way, you know, that, that is appropriate? So we all have our little rituals to calm those nerves. But they're a great thing because, you know, you need that little tickle of adrenaline because we are actually giving a performance and we really do want our, our message to land in the very best way. Yeah, well, uh, Andy and I have done presentations together and we, we had a, a sort of routine. In fact, the name Null and Void was sort of came from, I said before, our first ever joint presentation we we're going to do, which was the for the sports products of Forever Living. Mm. Uh, and and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll introduce us as the greatest uh, uh, the greatest double act since null and void. In other words, not adding up to very much and, and get a laugh early on. And, and, and we kind of went and, and because we were sort of jointly presenting and we're quite prepared to, I mean, we're mates, but we could have fun doing it. And, and, and um, it worked out really well. And we worked all around the UK doing these presentations, which were kind of ahead of their time at, at that point. But as you say, you, you need to know what you're doing and, you know, who's working the slides, who's doing what, you know, all of that. And, then, and we were in front of people we'd never seen in our lives before. The, the link was the forever family. In other words, we're sure. kind of coming from the same place and that gave you some comfort. But uh, yeah, and I know I, you have some interest in that. I, I still don't feel safe enough to go back to Wakefield after I said that rugby league wasn't proper rugby. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can imagine. You can you can relate to that, Andy. Yeah, it's all but, about emotions for me, though. I mean, I always ask that whenever I'm working with um, with a client, one of the questions I always ask in the briefing meeting prior to the conference is, you know, what would you like the audience to be thinking? feeling and what emotions would you like me to stir up in them during my presentation and then i yeah. I, I reverse engineer that yeah now listen just just skipping to one side because i think that whole area is fascinating itself but just take you back to 2011 mm. you're the man you're the man who ran 66 ultra marathons in 66 days in 66 different cities in the uk are you completely barking mad my car works now <laughs> <laughs> no no it's okay well it's it's, it's it's funny actually because um one of the one of the the i guess the impacts of that time 2008 through to 2010 when we were in austerity and i'd broken out from the corporate career and was driving my own business as a you know a leadership coach a leadership mindset coach was that I, I could probably have spent £10,000 on marketing and got no business from it because at those times, conferences were all being cancelled. And it was very tough to be able to market yourself and get, you know, everybody I spoke to said that their business was dropping off a cliff. And uh, I took a breath and I thought, well, you know, maybe I could do something that would capture attention. And uh, having completed the marathon to Saab, um, a year later, I tackled the toughest foot race that I've ever tackled. The marathon to Saab is five and a half marathons back to back during the through the Sahara, carrying everything you need supplies on your back, with the exception of water and a tent which they supply for you somewhere out there in the desert. And the long day on marathon to Saab, the fourth day, is usually a 52 mile day, a double marathon. And the race organisers of the Nib Namibian Desert Extreme Endurance Race decided they would they would take on that mantra of a single day toughest event. And they constructed a 78 mile run from Brandberg in the middle of the Namib through to the old fashioned, you know, the skeleton coast that we are so familiar seeing on um, documentaries, you know, that skeleton coast with their shipwrecks, etc. And so I, I tackled that race and, and, and came second in 21 hours. Um, against a guy who'd just beaten the person that was 13th in the world. So I felt immensely proud of that achievement, even though um, my race was scuppered by something called rhabdomyolysis, which is um, I, I took a protein shake during the race, which I have an intolerance to one of the enzymes, and it created a, a process in my body where my body started cannibalizing itself. And I was urinating blood and all sorts of stuff as my body started to basically break down the protein in the muscles. 
So my, my goal for the race was 15 hours. I came in in 21 hours in second place. Uh, I was happy with that. And in, in, in preparing for that race, I, I, I read a book or I, I heard, first of all, of an American runner called Mr. Ultra Marathon Man, a guy called Dean Carnassus. Mm-hmm. And North Face, the outdoors company, were, were rebranding some of their um, running equipment and they created a pair of shoes with him. And he said, I, I, I will put on an event. I'll run a marathon a day in each of the mainland states of America. So that's 50 marathons in 50 days consecutively. And I was fascinated by that, that mindset, you know, that that kind of, I wouldn't call it arrogance, but I just thought, well, I know how tough it was to run across the Sahara. I know how tough it was to run 78 miles through the Namibian desert. And admittedly, the heat, you know, was quite extreme at 46 to 50 degrees. But I just couldn't imagine how somebody could do that repetitively. So I sent away for his book and I got his DVD and I studied it. And lo and behold, he had a process which was exactly the same as mine. There were only five elements to it. The pace that he ran at, which had to be sustainable for 50 50 days, the amount of hydration he took on board to cool the body, the nutrition he took on board to fuel the body, the way he recuperated from each day's event, and the amount of sleep that he got, good quality rest. And I thought that's exactly the same as the way I look at it. So what was the difference? He had a big enough reason. Because as a sponsored and branded athlete, he catapulted himself into uh, into the eyes of, of, of the nation, I guess, in America. And his speaking fees, I think, at that time were something like $25,000 a speech, which is good <laughs> business, right? Good business, good business PR. And so I thought, I'll do the same. So I, I thought, well, I wonder what the most anyone ever has done then. And I set off to Guinness World Records and they said the world record was 52 marathons in 52 days with no day's rest held by a Japanese runner. And my little voice said, I wonder why Mr. Ultramarathon Man stopped at 50 when exactly the same process applied for another three days would have given him the world record. Mm-hmm. And then Is my other little voice was the 50 other... 50 states or... Yeah, 50 states, yeah. Wow. And then my other little voice said, go on then, Gobby, if you think it's that easy, you have a go. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it was really, it was simply that. It, it was curiosity. I became fascinated with my potential and I thought, you know, it's only a matter of taking care of the five essential parts of performance. And as long as you're motivated long enough, and Andy, you'll know this, that with extreme endurance distances, it's about keeping this in play, the mind. It's not about the body because if you fuel the body and you hydrate it well, it will keep performing and you look after it well with recuperation and recovery each day. It will keep performing for you. And everyone says the head gives up long before the body does. And that's the skill. The skill is to have a big enough reason why and a strong enough emotional attachment to the success, the finishing line. And, and, and that was it for me. I, I, I found a charity which had supported my father, who was a career soldier uh, at the time, ABF, the soldiers charity, um, the, the, the British Army's national charity. At that time in 2010, we're facing a 30% increase in demand for the injured veterans coming back from conflict zones in Afghanistan, particularly. And uh, I asked them if they would like to be the beneficiaries of an event that would be going to every single city of the UK at the time in 2010. There were 66 um, because they recruit from every city. Uh, And it was an excellent combined profile raising event. It lifted their profile nationally and internationally, and it lifted my profile as the lunatic that was tackling that type of event. Because I don't know if um, your readers or your listeners will know, but on day two, I tore my Achilles tendon on my right ankle. I mean, was that a point where you thought that's it, game over, or did you not even let that thought enter your head? Um, it didn't enter my head initially. It happened in Bradford on uh, about the fifth lap. So about five miles into the day, uh, I, I got a stabbing pain, like I kicked a thorn into my sock. That's what I imagined had happened. And I couldn't see anything there. And it continued to gripe as I went round the circuit. And I had a sports injury therapist on the team as an insurance policy for the sponsors. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had a look at the ankle and she said, no, I, I can see, you know, it's, it's a tendinopathy. You've actually torn your Achilles. And I said, well, what does that mean? She goes, I think it's going to get progressively worse. I can't see you being able to complete this. We're going to have to have a real good think. And I saw the team's heads drop. 
in that instant. And we'd spent a year planning and preparation. We had to get 66 routes measured with a surveyor's wheel. Yeah, uh, if you've ever had to deal with 66 city councils and health and safety <laughs> committees, you know, you'll understand. It's I mean, one's quid- bad enough. But yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So it was an immense undertaking. And and I just said, look, you know, it, it isn't that bad at the moment. Let's get to the end of the day and see where we are. And it got progressively worse, as you can imagine. And I said, look, our job is to get me to the start line in Hull tomorrow. And that's the next day. And we're just going to focus one day at a time. But as the injury manifested itself and, and, and the swelling started to increase, the pain started to increase, I said to, uh, to, to Sophie Bowden, my sports injury therapist, said, look, phone the Sports Injury Therapy Society of Great Britain. You're a chartered member and ask them if, if any of their athletes anywhere globally have worked. Sorry, if any of their therapists globally have worked with an athlete intending on run, running a torn, in, torn tendon back to health. And they said, no, it can't be done. It's never been done. Tell them to rest it, ice it, compress it and elevate it. And I said, well, look, you know, we're not quitting on day two. We're not quitting on day three. We're just going to work our way through this. We figured out a small management plan that allowed us to be able to maintain the injury below a critical severance of that tendon. And uh, in 13 days, we uh, we ran it back into health. She discharged it from medical science on day 13. She took a photograph on day 18 and it was back to normal. Wow. I, I saw those pictures, uh, Andy, and, and you showed them. Yeah. Quite remarkable, really transformation and and you'd say no that that can't have happened you know somebody's doctor does pitch it but to have done what you've done that is absolutely remarkable and going back to what you said before i guess the driving force was the cause you know the link with your father the soldiers charity and so on that was the ultimate driving force yeah Guys, you know, I had ambassadors for the charity coming down to start the events, you know, with the dignitaries that were there and the press that were there covering the events. And I'm standing next to guys who are double amputees. You know, they've lost both legs below the knee. Uh, and in one instance, my good friend Andy Reid, a triple amputee. And I gave up the right to complain about a sore ankle immediately when I'm standing next to one of those guys, you know. Uh, and they've got a great sense of humor and they took the mickey out of me something rotten they said i don't know what you're complaining about we don't get blisters you know <laughs> and, uh, and our, our feet don't hurt you know <laughs> uh, and you know that sometimes that dark humor works um but yeah. uh, for me it was it was a, a case of understanding that we we're amazingly adaptive people you know our physiology is designed to adapt and if we can get the mind in play and we can, you know, we can manage the pain signals. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was actually practicing self-hypnosis. I entered into a negotiation with my body where I said to the Achilles, look, I know you're hurting. I appreciate you drawing my attention to the fact that you are injured. But, you know, you can transmit the signals, um, but I will not allow the pain to go any further than my calf. And I'm not going to tense the calf. I'm going to run naturally and I'm going to adjust my stance. I'm going to try and protect you as much as possible. But this isn't over until we finish. I didn't start to fail. I started to finish. And it's this this kind of mindset that I was learning to develop through all of my training, you know, through the Marathon de Saab, Namibia, etc. It's just looking at what you can do and not what you can't do. You raised a million pounds, didn't you? We we set out to raise £66,000. We set a league table up for £1,000 per city, which we thought was ambitious. And when we tallied up everything at the end of the event with all the legacy stuff that was still going on for a couple of months, we raised over £450,000 and some fantastic PR and profile for the organisation. Yeah. Unbelievable. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that is a great story. And, and obviously, as you said, from a professional point of view, your profile was massively high through there. So the objective of creating a a marketing budget was very definitely achieved. So that pushed you on further with contacts that came from there and that helped your business. I I take it anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, you know, I was making a statement about my brand. You know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to work in the arena of elite mindset, then I've got to be delivering elite mindset. I've got to be showing that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm congruent. Mm, absolutely right so since then andy have you continued to run or have you said actually i I, i've seen enough of (laughs) enough running for the uh to last me a lifetime with those sort of events or 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 what do you do now in terms of 
Well, your cardiologist uh, on, on, the, on the last podcast would have had a fit because I crossed <laughs> the finishing line on my 50th birthday and uh, I stopped running immediately. I went for walks, you know, to, to, to sort of walk and to, to exercise, mm-hmm. but I didn't run for quite a while, as you can imagine. My body was tired and, uh, and I just felt I needed that recovery. I did run one more marathon after that and uh, I, I kind of said to myself, you know, you've ticked that box. If I'm honest, I had severe arthritis in my left knee prior to doing Challenge 66. And my consultant surgeon scraped it all out for me and did an arthroscopy in the August of 2010 before I commenced the event on the 16th of March 2011. Uh, And since then, I've had a partial knee replacement, which was 2018. So I haven't run, but I still am very active in the gym. I'm Current and funny enough, Andy, I, I started yesterday. My step goal for the week is 140,000 steps, so that's 20,000 a day. I had a busy week last week, and I started yesterday morning, the final day of the week, with a 56,000 step deficit. <laughs> <laughs> so I banged in 26 miles yesterday to to make up my deficit. So I am still focused. I am still committing myself to goals and um, I try to get into the gym, you know, five, six times a week to get a good session in there um, and maintain that physiology and maintain the mindset. So in business terms, uh, when you look at how and where you could go from where you are now, do you have a sort of a wind down plan? Where are you? I mean, are you saying, no, there's a million things I want to achieve? There's a million things I want to achieve. I'm absolutely in love with what I do. I thoroughly enjoy helping people unlock their potential. I love helping them to get rid of limiting beliefs. Um, and just to understand, most people, I mean, we, we run these extreme. I, I think you have to have a, a really terrible memory to be an ultramarathon runner because you don't remember how badly these things can hurt sometimes. <laughs> you sign up for a race, you do the race, you say never again. You sign up for the next one, and three days before the race, you go, oh, God, I've remembered these things hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just kind of love helping people that have got goals and ambitions uh, understand that if they truly understood their potential, they wouldn't be able to sleep at night. They'd be astounded. It's a, it's a great a great story, and I, I imagine again, I think you're the first person with the qualifications you've got with had on. So another great recommendation from from Mike. But is it is it something that everybody, all our listeners, and we've got listeners throughout the world and so on. Uh, but is it something that people should all pay attention to? This, I mean, I, I don't say that. Yeah, ring me tomorrow, kind of thing. But but. Is it something we should be giving more attention to in in terms of ultimately how we can succeed at everything we want to do? From a potential point of view, we are, our our brains are designed to be constantly evolving, constantly seeking um, new successes. We are designed for growth. We have a really powerful chemical at play called dopamine, which is the appetitive chemical, the reward and the pleasure chemical. But it's very, very good at driving our, our motivation. And, and uh, whenever we lock on to a new goal, a dream, an ambition, it's actually dopamine that's in play, energizing us and exciting us and keeping us focused on what we're trying to achieve. And if we understand, you know, we, we know the stress hormones of cortisol and adrenaline drive the stress response, but we have an equally powerful equally powerful appetitive response um, to go out there and and to achieve when we lock in our mind and our chemistry and our biology and our physiology it all works for us very successfully so i i noted and it's a bit sort of off piece in terms of what we've been saying but you once won an award for englishman of the year didn't you I did, yes. One of the the outcomes, I guess, from all the PR and the publicity of Challenge 66 was that um, I I was invited. I got a letter one morning, which, uh, in fact, I still have it on the wall. And the opening opening paragraph reads, following a meeting of the Council of Officers, the St. George's Day Club have voted that you should be honoured as true Englishman of the year. You'll be inducted into the same Hall of Fame as Sir Steve Redgrave, Sir Roger Bannister, Sir Ian Botham, 
uh, and many others, Sir Henry Cooper, etc. So I, I thought it was a wind-up at first. Uh, <laughs> some of my mates taking my taking the Mickey, but um, my speaking agent phoned me to see if I had a date available in my diary, which was very close to that date. And I said, "Well, I've only got one date in the diary at that that week of April, and it happens to be for this organisation." But I, you know, I, I haven't been able to do much research or find them. She goes, "Oh." Funny enough, I supply the speaker there every year. So I can guarantee you it's a genuine letter. It's a genuine. <laughs> but I had to write to them, you see, because actually I was born in Scotland. So I had to write to them out of integrity and authenticity and say, look, gentlemen, thank you so much for considering me. I am absolutely delighted to accept the award, but I do have to let you know I was born in Scotland. So I may not qualify, but they were gracious enough to say, no, we'd like to recognise you anyway. So now I tell them they couldn't find an Englishman worthy that year. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Be, be very careful. Be very careful. Uh, yeah, the only thing you're short of there, uh, Andy, is a, is a knighthood, obviously. So we've got to, we've got to work <laughs> on that to get you I don't think that's going to be on the cards. But no, no, it's phenomenal to be in the sort of exal exalted realms of, along with people like Sir Steve Redgrave, Sir, I, I still pinch myself, Andy, to be honest. I just can't believe that happened, you know. And um, and I've met, obviously, many of them at the dinner. And, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an I mean, absolute honour and a privilege. Definitely a deserved award after putting yourself through, you know, 66 ultra marathons in 66 cities in 66 days. I think, you know, certainly it deserved that recognition. But as you say, yeah, just to be sat there and go, Wow, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty pretty cool achievement as well. I'll tell you a lovely little story because in Sheffield, um, on, on as we were leaving Yorkshire to sort of head around the country, most of the um, the officer training cadet organisations within the universities, obviously because they are part of the the military. Uh, uh, infrastructure they they all came and supported the events when we were running in each city and in sheffield there was there was seven uh, cadets turned up to to run three miles with me and i was running at a very gentle pace so pace i was running at was 12 minutes a mile five miles an hour so i was expecting to get round in just over six and a half hours depending on the terrain Mm. and uh, they did they ran three miles and I said oh, let's just go a little bit further guys because you've got more in you let's have a little bit of a chat and I was coaching them around the course and we were talking about life we were talking about their journey once they leave university where they were going and they were asking for advice and I was sharing advice and lo and behold we got to 10 miles and I said guys you, you've got to make it a half marathon so sure enough, we, we got to 13 miles and there was plenty of food and water for them. And they got to 13 miles. I said, look, it's a beautiful day. We've still got some time. You know, why don't you just let's just make it 20. And sure enough, they got to 20. I said, oh, you can't stop without hitting a marathon. Come on, guys, let's keep it going. All of them completed an ultramarathon that day for the very first time with very minimal training at a very gentle pace. Fantastic story, lovely story. Now, I, I imagine people are listening to you tonight thinking, wow, this guy's something else. You know, it's a, it is a great story. But apart from that, if there any aspect of your business and they wanted to get in touch with you, how best do they do that, Andy? Well, they can connect with me directly on LinkedIn if they'd like to, if they're on LinkedIn, or they can go to my, my um, primary website, which is www.peak.com personalperformance.co.uk and drop me a message and I'd be delighted to help in any way. If I can share advice, I can share information, happy to do so. So it really is excellent having you with us and uh, delighted and, and hopefully we can find occasions to come back to you and talk. Would you happy to do that? I'd be delighted. I've really enjoyed speaking with you guys and I was fascinated listening to the preamble. <laughs> fantastic Andy yeah I, I'll certainly be in touch uh, I, I will own up to this one because I think uh, friends and relatives already know about it I'm actually running um, the very first Falklands Ultra in April next year which is a uh, 100 miles through following the route pretty much that the troops uh, took way back in 82 it was meant to be this year to mark 40 years but unfortunately due to Covid um, the logistics and things had to be moved out so I know I'll definitely be in touch ahead of that to uh, brilliant brains on some of those strategies that you talked about around uh, how to keep going through uh, some of the tougher events. I've been honoured and had the privilege of working with a number of ex-Special Forces veterans that were there at that time. So I know uh, I know a lot of the background, a lot of the stories, and you'll probably meet some of them there. Brilliant, Andy. Thank you for sparing the time tonight. Great story. Really enjoyed it. We'll have this up 
uh, on the on Spotify and Apple and whatever uh, at the end of the week, and we'll send you the link. And if you want to pass it to whoever you do, because I think it tells a great story in a fabulous way. Really appreciate it. Very happy to do so. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Cheers, Thank you, Andy. Andy. Cheers. Bye, now, another great episode. Really enjoyed Andy Mackie's interview and such a fascinating insight into a world that many people know little about. Well, you know a bit more about it now because he's excellent. Thanks, Andy Mack. Well, that brings us to, to the close this week's episode in an extraordinary week in all of our lives. Make sure you're there next week at a time and a place to suit you. We'll leave you with one collective thought. God, God save, the, save king. the king. Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan. Together, they don't add up to much. If you have a sports story, you can contact the team on nandv at forthenow.co.uk.